Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr, and this week we're talking about T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. The most famous poem of the 20th century was published in 1922 in the first issue of a literary magazine of almost invisible circulation edited by the author himself. But in fewer than ten years, it had achieved an almost scriptural status for a generation of poets and artists who believed that they must respond to modernity in a form and idiom quite different from that of the poets they'd learned at school. Many people felt that Eliot's wasteland, with its broken images and apparently incoherent form, was both a symptom and a diagnosis of a crisis of modernity, a world where traditional meanings and ways of life had been violently disrupted by a great war, a destructive urban industrialization, social fragmentation and the decline of religion. Eliot probably thought this too, though later in life, somewhat embarrassed by the significance claimed for his poem by others, he described it as, quote, the relief of a personal and wholly insignificant grouse against life, just a piece of rhythmical grumbling, unquote. With its many languages, its obscure allusions and difficult form, The Wasteland is not just a masterpiece of literary modernism, but also a challenge to readers. As the poem's centenary approaches, we take up the challenge. So, helping me to construe Eliot's great poem are two Hong Kong-based literary scholars, Emily Ridge from the Department of Literature and Cultural Studies at the Hong Kong Institute of Education, and Julian Lam, who teaches in the English Department at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Now, uh, Julian Lam, I want to begin with you, and we need to remind ourselves that Eliot didn't believe in importing information about the poet's life uh, into our appreciation of a poem, but I think we need to understand a bit about him. So can you sketch for us something about Eliot's background and say where he was and what he was doing in 1921-22? Sure. I, I think it's fair to say that his life up until that point uh, was restless and perhaps even fragmentary, and I use those words advisedly because they may recur in our discussion of the mm. wasteland itself. Um, Eliot was born in 1888 in St. Louis in Missouri. He died in 1965 in London. His early years in St. Louis he actually remembers very fondly. Um, he had a medical condition which prevented him from uh, participating in a lot of sport and outdoor activity, and so he spent a lot of time indoors reading. Uh, and this was where his, his love of literature really first began. Uh, he attended uh, a school called the Smith Academy, which was, in fact, founded by his grandfather. And he was there uh, 1898 to 1905. And from there, he gained admittance into uh, Harvard University, where he studied uh, for a BA in philosophy. And it was at Harvard that he was introduced to uh, philosophers, uh, poets who, who came to be quite important influences on him, uh, particularly French philosophers. Uh, and the, the, the significant names here are La Forgue uh, and Verlaine and Rimbaud. These are French poets of the later part of the 19th century. That's correct. Uh, and, and, and often regarded as symbolist poets or imagist poets. Um, and in fact, Eliot's early poetry published in 1917 uh, was uh, initially belittled as kind of a poor version of this, this earlier French poetry. Um, 
Also at Harvard, he, he met uh, the American novelist Conrad Aitken. Uh, and Aitken is, is important in Eliot's life, not just because he was a lifelong friend, but also because Aitken eventually introduced Eliot to Ezra Pound. Uh, and Ezra Pound uh, exerted uh, a very important influence on, on the wasteland in terms of its editing. Uh, after a brief time as philosophy as, uh, assistant at Harvard, uh, Eliot then moved to Paris for a little while to study at the Sorbonne, wasn't entirely happy there, and so moved back to Harvard to study Indian philosophy uh, until 1914. The influence of Indian philosophy we can still we can see in the wasteland. There is yeah. a bit of Sanskrit in the wasteland. He was then tempted back across the Atlantic uh, with a scholarship from Merton College in Oxford. He didn't seem to like Oxford all that much. Um, and then there was a period in his life where he sort of went to and fro between jobs. So uh, during uh, this period from around about 1915 onwards, he studied uh, at where he, he, he taught at Birkbeck uh, University of London for a little while. Uh, then he taught at uh, Highgate School and also the Royal Grammar School in High Wycombe. Uh, during this time, uh, he had completed his doctoral thesis, which he, he submitted. This was back in Harvard. Uh, he did not return for the Viva. Uh, and in 1917, he uh, 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 became a banker at Lloyd's Bank until 1925. In 1925, he became, uh, he, he joined um, uh, a publishing house, then called uh, Faber and Guire, uh, and was later Faber and Faber, and he was there for the rest of his career. A final note on, on, on Eliot's early life that, that um, I think bears some impact on the wasteland is his marriage uh, to Vivian Haig Wood. Uh, they met in early 1915, uh, and were married only a few months after that. Um, it was largely an unhappy marriage uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, Vivian suffered from uh, many physical conditions, but also mental conditions. Uh, and she spent a lot of time away trying to recover from, from her various ailments. Um, Eliot, in his 60s, had something, I think, quite pertinent to say about this, about this marriage. He said, to her... The marriage brought no happiness. To me, it brought the state of mind out of which came the wasteland. <coughs> Not exactly a ringing endorsement. <laughs> no. And you mentioned 1917 is when Elliot goes to work in, in the bank. And we need to note, of course, that's right in the depths mm -hmm. of the First World War. Um, so we t thanks, Julian. That's very helpful. We take from that a number of things. First of all, the restlessness and unhappiness of the personal life, which is... Um, tough for the individual, but possibly quite fruitful for the poet. Secondly, the fact that Eliot was fantastically learned. He was very, very well educated, had many languages. He'd studied deeply in, in philosophy and literature and, and religion and all the rest. These things are going to go into the wasteland. In some sense, the wasteland is a kind of epic or a fragmentary mm. epic. Ezra Pound says an epic is a poem containing history. Mm. Um, what history... Tell us something about some of the history that the poem contains something about the historical context of the years before he actually wrote it? Um, well, I think history is hugely important uh, in this poem, and I think personally it enters in, or he engages with history on a couple of different uh, levels. I mean, first of all, the poem was written in 1922, which I think, incidentally, it's worth pointing out, was something of an anus mirabilis for modernist writing, because that also saw the publication of Wolf's Jacob's Room and Joyce's Ulysses as something of a backdrop. Um, but in any case, I think uh, 
1922, we're talking about the immediate post-war uh, period here, and I think that's a hugely important backdrop uh, for the poem. Um, there's a sense of, a great sense of unsettlement at this point in Europe. Um, the Versailles Treaty of 1919 brought some sense of reconciliation or resolution to the conflict, but also brought with it you know, problems of its own and a sense of resentment in many quarters that would kind of pave the way for future uh, conflicts. Um, so there's a sense of physical but also uh, emotional, we could say spiritual crisis that he uh, represents in a wider way in this poem, um, a, a kind of post-war sense of crisis or anxiety, which is very much present. So I think it's important to note that, as you've pointed out, um, I think Eliot was undergoing kind of personal conflicts at this time um, with regard to his wife's mental health. Uh, he, he was undergoing some financial trouble at this time also and had a kind of a nervous breakdown himself preceding the, the composition of this poem. So it's important to understand that his personal conflicts were kind of uh, also, I suppose, reflecting a wider sense of crisis um, socially and culturally. So that's one, I think the recent or immediate history is very much there in the poem. But there's also, as you mentioned, there's a sense of a kind of a... On another level, there's a sense of a broader um, engage, uh, engagement with the past and which, with history on a wider uh, level in the poem as well. I mean, we could say that the range of references in uh, the wasteland extends back through, you know, Shakespeare, Chaucer, the Bible, back to Greek mythology. There's a, a kind of sense of ex expansive sense of history uh, in this poem. And Eliot himself, in his very famous essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent, uh, very much kind of had a sense that he was writing as part of a longer tradition. And this uh, is very much an evidence in a somewhat fractured way. Uh, in the wasteland. Um, and I think what, it, for me, what is most interesting about the wasteland is the way in which the past or history seems to intrude upon the pres everyday reality uh, that he depicts um, on a material uh, level uh, in the wasteland. So there's definitely a link between history and the personal or the intimate in this poem. Very good. Let's cling on to, you use the word fracture, which mm -hmm. is a very good word. And I think of the aftermath of the, the Great War with all these empires that have collapsed, mm. the Russian, the German, the Austro-Hungarian, the Ottoman Empire, mm -hmm. um, all finished. Um, the kind of fracture, the kind of social fracture that happened with many hundreds of thousands of young men going away to the war, some of them never coming back, but others coming back in a fairly fragile mm. um, state, and what's happened to the women during that time mm -hmm. this is also something that goes into the wasteland. Um, and finally, when you talk about the literary tradition which, in which the wasteland is steeped, I think it's interesting too that that word can, fracture can be applied to that also, can't it? Mm. In the sense that every every poem has has a history of poetry encoded in it, but in the wasteland's history of, of poetry, of literature, of culture comes in bits. Mm. In he, he uses the word ruins. Mm. So this is a poem in some respects ab about fracture, about ruin, and perhaps about trying to put these things together again. Sorry, mm. This is a big gloss on, on what you said. Okay, let's take this idea of fracture back now to think about the form of the poem. Mm. We expect poems to be to have some kind of symmetry, some kind of rhythm. The way sound that's quite hard to find, isn't it? So, Julian, expand to us the architecture of the wasteland. Sure, I mean, uh, 
Douglas, you, you, you uh, at, at the beginning of, of the program, you, you read out that quote where Elliot describes it as rhythmic grumbling. Rhythmic well, grumbling. most of it isn't rhythmic. <laughs> it's just grumbling <laughs> uh, in, in, in that sense. But yes, one, one might expect a certain symmetry. Um, and symmetries sort of emerge in the poem, but, but certainly not one coherent symmetry. Uh, the poem appears to us in five parts, uh, and uh, the parts have, have titles. The first part is called... Um, the Burial of the Dead, the second part is The Game of Chess, the third part is The Fire Sermon, the fourth part is Death by Water, and the fifth part is the, um, What the Thunder Said. Um, and these are unequal parts. Uh, the fourth part is extremely short. One of the things, however, that the titles do give us a sense of, at least the first four, are the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Um, these, are, these are obviously physical, material elements, uh, and once we identify that, then our attention might turn to the title of, of the fifth section, What the Thunder Said. And thunder in, in many mythologies is associated with the gods. And so we might think in terms of the first four uh, sections dealing in some way with physicality and the final section in some way or another turning its attention to spirituality. And I think this is... A big concern of the poems, the, the, the relationship between the physical and the spiritual, or, or a yearning for the spiritual from the physical, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, I think um, on the surface, the, po the poem seems quite chaotic and a kind of massive illusions and whatnot, but I, I think Eliot once said himself that he didn't believe in free verse, that he, you know, verse was never free, and I think it's important to note that. I think the poem, however chaotic it seems on the surface, is quite carefully constructed and thought out in many ways. Would you I, agree? I, absolutely. And, 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 and let me give uh, two examples of that. Um, firstly, Eliot um, repeats sentences or words mm -hmm. or images throughout. So uh, a, a phrase like, um, those are pearls that were his eyes, mm. which is actually a quotation from The Tempest. This recurs mm. a couple of times throughout the poem. And other images, other phrases recur throughout the mm. poem. And as you're reading this or as you're hearing it being read, you kind of think, yeah, I, I've, I've heard that somewhere before. Mm. And so even though the poem might seem quite chaotic, it's nevertheless giving the impression of a kind of coherence. Yes, the, the parts seem to speak to each other across the poem. I mean, the Madame Sosostris, I you know, mispronounce that. Um, you know, she, she predicts death by water, and that then happen, go, That's happens the in section. the fourth yeah. section. So there is a sense that these parts are talking to each other. And it's very much a poem that's that works with juxtaposition, right? And I think one of the interesting things about juxtaposition is whether that creates connection or conflict in a way. Okay, but it seems to me that you're both, in a sense, talking about the poem as you might talk about a piece of music mm. um, with certain phrases, images, motifs that, that come back and are repeated, um, but not in more conventional ways in which we might think about a poem's organisation. If I name any number of important English poems, you yeah. would probably be able to say, well, that one's about this, this story, this mood this event, this idea, you can't really do that with the Wasteland, you, can you? you? You can't really, but then on the other hand, um, if, if, if you read the poem and you think about the poem, try to imagine the end at the beginning and the beginning at the end, and it would be a completely different poem. 
there, 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 is, there, there, is, there is a reason why the end is where it is. There is a reason why the beginning is where it is. And dare I say, there is a reason why the middle is, is, is where it is. Um, and I think the end is, is actually quite climactic. So the first four sections take us through, um, or, or they give us a glimpse of many, many individuals engaged in their daily lives. A lot of them are, are, are suffering quite deeply. Some of them are reminiscing. Uh, some of them are hoping against hope. They're not having a great time of it. Their, their, their lives are broken. Their marriages are broken. Their relationships are broken. So there's a theme. There's a theme <laughs> of fracturing. There we are. And then, but then in, in the fifth section, it's almost as if the camera pans out briefly. Um, and instead of getting close-ups of people, we get broad panoramas of hordes of people wandering over endless plains. And these hordes of people wandering over endless plains eventually make it to the bottom of a mountain. I think Eliot is, is recalling, uh, recalling a lot of Old Testament imagery here. And one thinks of the Hebrews in the wilderness eventually making their way to the bottom of Mount Sinai. And here they are at the bottom of this mountain waiting for the thunder to sound. Um, and the thunder, or is it thunder, but something seems to speak from the top of this mountain. And they're at the bottom of this mountain trying to interpret it. Now, I, I would argue it would be utterly nonsensical to have that at the beginning. The, play, uh, the, the, the poem in its, in its depiction of these individuals seems to culminate at this moment where they all gather at the bottom of this mountain. And I think this really relates to, to its situation at the, end of, towards the, at the end of the First World War, the question of, well, what now? You know, we've spent four years trying to destroy each other. We're all in bits. What now? Yes, I mean, even though the um, the poem, as I've already said, is very much concerned with the past and with history, there is a real also sense of fear and dread for the future, I would say, that runs throughout the poem, even, you know, from the opening lines, that idea of memory and desire, which kind of relates to a kind of sense of the past and a sense of moving forward at the same time. And I think this... Okay, I, I think that's quite plausible, actually. I'm prepared to invest in, in your reading of the poem. There's a lot of wandering around and being lost, and then towards the end you come to a, a point where a revelation is sought. It may not be given, mm -hmm. but a revelation is sought. So it's a kind of journey poem. That would give us the structure, and it's an odd, strange, sort of lame structure of five very unequally length um, chapters. The texture is another problem for us because then if I say to you, okay, Emily, who's it about? Where are they? When does it take place? These are questions that you can't answer with enormous confidence, I would think. That's to say the time shifts, the place shifts, the characters shift, the voices shift. Yeah, it's a very slippery poem. Very slippery it? poem. Mm. Okay, what we need to do now is is listen to a bit of it. So, Julian, I invite you just to read the opening of the poem, then we can just get some sense of the texture. Sure. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dry tubers. 
Summer surprised us. Coming over the Stanburgerse with a shower of rain, we stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hofgarten and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Bin gar keine Russen stammen aus Litauen echt Deutsch. And when we were children, staying at the Archduke's, my cousins, he took me out on a sled and I was frightened. He said, Marie, Marie, hold on tight. And down we went. In the mountains there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. Okay, that is brilliant. So we're getting a sense of how many different voices, how many different voices, Julian? A lot. A lot I, I, yeah. I never counted up how many. <laughs> because we, we seem to have different registers. It starts with, with a very kind of portentous and, and poetic beginning. Yes. Then in the middle it becomes rather conversational. We realise that we have to think in terms of a, a, a different accent, which you supplied for us. And then it slips into another language, with a bit of German in the middle. And then back into reminiscence... This is the first thing you meet. Yeah. You open the book. Yeah. You open the, the poem, bang, April is the cruelest month. I think yeah. you're kind of thrown off kilter from that very yeah. first line. I mean, purely because, I mean, that first line uh, is an allusion to Chaucer's opening of the Canterbury Tales when he talks about April being the sweetest month. So already we're kind of getting a sense of being part of a tra tradition but disrupting that tradition at the They're same zooming time. zooming right back to the beginning of English poetry. Yes, the first exactly. word of the beginning of English poetry exactly. and turning it upside down. And it kind of turns, I mean, it's not just on a poet. I mean, we tend to think of spring as a time of hope. So mm -hmm. from that first line, I think, uh, on a very basic level, we're, we're being thrown in some way or we're being disoriented. Absolutely. And, and there, obviously there's no unifying voice. There, there are all these different voices that are, that are thrown at you. Um, and they're in different places, some of them quite definite places. There, there are definite allusions to actual places in Germany there. But the first voice that we hear, well, where is that spoken? Um, mm. Presumably it's somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, but, uh, but we don't really know. So there's, there, there's a sense of no place to that voice and then a very definite place to the next voice. Uh, and then uh, the, the German woman who comes in, well, presumably somewhere in Germany, but, but you don't know. And so it's, it's sort of shifting in and out of definite focus in that sense as well. Yeah, and I mean, you can't hear this in the reading, but there are no quotation marks for any kind of uh, dialogue in this. So you're not helped to see where there might be a shift mm -hmm. from, one, from one character to another. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think it's useful, we were talking about radio recently, mm. to think about this as sort of tuning across the dial, where, where you get a, a blast of music and then a piece of Dutch and, and then an interview with somebody and, and mm. then a... A, a drama or something mm -hmm. you you can't really tell where these voices are coming from but they're all on on the, the bandwidth if you feel kind of comfortable or at ease reading the wasteland you're probably missing the point i think part of it is it, part of uh, i mean this poem really um is supposed to unsettle a reader to disorient them it is yeah and and, and it's right rightly regarded as a london poem interestingly though the the first references are are, are to germany and and berlin mm. Uh, very quickly from there, it, it shifts into uh, very specific London images of uh, uh, men, uh, probably bankers, as Elliot was at this point. Um, I imagine them wearing their pinstripe suits, um, walking over London Bridge. 
um, and there's there's an extraordinary line that 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 um, Eliot has borrowed from Dante, describing the souls of dead people walking into hell. So many I had not thought death had undone so many. Describing bankers walking to work in the morning, uh, it's quite prescient, I think. You know, to think of this line in a Hong Kong context. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, it's 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 very much a London poem, uh, and and in fact, the the references to to specific places are are, are far more London based than than anywhere. But yet, the geographical range is really wide in this poem. You get so many languages thrown in. Um, we get you know references to Hindu, um, you know German, French poets, Dante. I think. Uh, yes, the, the London seems to be kind of the foundation for this, but its its reach is larger. And all over the map, Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London. I think but this come back, comes back to the idea of disorientation, a very spatial yeah, yeah. As, as much as an interpretative sense. Hmm. Well, this is how we perceive the world. I mean, or, or at least this is one uh, uh, theory on how we perceive the world in fragments. Um, and they remain fragments. Uh, and, and one of the, I think, appealing things about the the wasteland is... Um, in the way, the way in which it asserts the integrity of the fragment as a fragment. Um, and we can enjoy, we can scrutinize each fragment as it is and do our best, I think, to resist the temptation to weld them all together into some sort of superstructure. Um, Eliot was asked um, to supply some uh, explanatory notes to this extremely difficult poem, which he did slightly reluctantly but ended up having a bit of fun with it. Um, there's a character that occurs uh, that, that appears in, in section three uh, called Tiresias, who in these notes Eliot identifies as the center of the poem. And you kind of think, well, finally the poem has some kind of center. Well, I challenge anyone to meaningfully read the poem with Tiresias as its center, um, uh, beyond the fact that he is physically the center of the poem. Th those are the middle lines of the poem. And so Eliot, I think, in many ways, is, is playing with our, with our expectation, with our desire for there to be a centre. OK. And yet there are some identifiable scenes, little bits of drama um, here and there, often between a man and a woman. Fine. This poem has not always been a favourite with feminists. Yes, I think it's fair to say that quite a number of the women who are represented in the poem seem to be subjects of de degradation in some way. I mean, we move from the, um, well, the figure of Philomel, who was raped, um, had her tongue cut out, to then um, into the present with the, the typist who is, um, who undergoes a fairly sordid sexual encounter. And I think a lot of these scenes kind of represent some kind of sexual exploitation. And I think it's open to debate as to whether we might read that in misogynistic or more sympathetic terms. In many ways, I think he's representing a kind of wider human uh, degradation or sexual degradation on a more general level. I, I think one of the, the interesting things about Eliot's representation of women is whenever they uh, speak in the wasteland, they, 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 they actually speak, they, they have dialogue. They are never, if you like, given the privilege or they never have the status of anyone who can have internal speech. Only the men have that. We, we see into the minds of men, and they speak in their own minds, they speak their thoughts internally, but none of the women do that. They always speak externally. Which and is interesting, sorry, because of that central character, Philomel, who has her tongue cut out. So it's tongue. interesting the dialogue and women seem to go together Absolutely. Um, in this text. And most of them seem to be complaining. Um, mm. They are... A lot of them hysterical. I, I, I think, you know, if, if we are to use the, the sort of the historical meaning of that of that term, 
um, uh, they're complaining about their nerves, uh, about their emotions, and so on. Um, and then they're, they're never given the privilege of having, you know, their, their own thoughts. They're all they're always speaking out aloud. I think to ensure a bit of gender balance here, we should say the men are not much to write home about no. either. Uh, most of them damaged in some way or another, neurotic, fearful, faithless, if not actually disabled in some way. So, um, look, we have used up our time in, in classic modernist fashion. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't come to, to uh, a, a neat kind of conclusion or closure, but I'd like to thank you both very much, Emily Ridge and Julian Lamb, and thank you for listening.